0: Good morning. I had nothing to do with the uh, dessert that's planned afterwards, so whoever planned that, thank you very much. We are continuing on in Matthew. We are up to Jesus' nativity, to the, uh, to the visit of the Magi from the east. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses this morning. So once you're there, then I'd ask you to stand. And this is God's infallible word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And you can be seated. Last week I made the statement that world history is there to serve church history or to serve redemptive history. And that might sound like a bold statement, but I really believe it's true. World history exists because God has brought it into being, he's created it to exist the way it has, and that is ultimately to serve his purposes. And we have hints of that, how history is meant to serve the purposes of God in Scripture. You're perhaps familiar with the passage in, um, for some reason my screen is freezing up here, in... um, Galatians 4.4 4 that says but when the fullness of time had come and the word there is pleroma when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and so what does that mean the fullness of time what had to happen what was going on that made it just the right time now for the God man to enter the world we sang about it in the one song, the lyrics allude to the 400 years of silence, and this is the time between the Old and the New Testament, and it's actually a fascinating period of time. It's one, to me, it's one of the most exciting periods of time in all of history because of what all happens and the way certain prophecies in the Bible play out so meticulously, and we won't do a deep dive on that, but I want to draw a few highlights to a few things that happened in that period of time. Um, And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that the Old Testament runs uh, roughly till the end of when uh, Israel is exiled. Uh, The Babylonians have taken over. Assyria first of all took Israel to the north, and then Babylon uh, conquers Judah in the south. And the Medo-Persians are coming onto the scene just at the end. And if you read the book of Daniel, you'll know that the Medo-Persians are on the scene. And Daniel has a series of very interesting prophecies that he lays out in the book, and you can read it in Daniel 2 and 7 and 8, where it talks about the succession of empires that's going to come and go. And at first it appears as a statue with a head, uh, and then shoulders and waist and feet that are all different from each other, and then a few times it appears as different beasts coming from different places. Uh, And then, towards the end of the book, in chapter 8, Daniel gives the explanation for his prophecy. This is the series of empires that's going to occupy the land of Israel in this time. And it starts with the Babylonians and then the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks and finally the Romans. And it's when the Romans are ruling this area that this rock in one of Daniel's visions comes and knocks the statue down. It's in the time of the Romans. Hold that thought. <clears throat> The land of Israel was like, uh, it, it's like a football in this time. It keeps getting tossed around. People come, empires grab it, and they take it. Uh, and then someone else comes on the scene and they take it. And so it was, uh, it was this volatile land uh, that everyone kind of came and went and did their thing. And then the next empire comes and goes. Uh, but it's fascinating because even though none of these empires were believing empires, so to speak, in God's purposes, they all did something important to set the, the scene just right uh, for Jesus to be born, and people at the time, seemingly at least if they were familiar with the Old Testament, knew roughly what was happening. One of the most interesting stories in all of this: Daniel has a prophecy about a leopard with wings that comes from the east. And uh, when Alexander the Great is on his mission and he's just cleaning up territory going from east to west, he gets to Jerusalem, and the high priest of Jerusalem, a man by the name of Jedua, is there waiting for him. He says, "Oh, I've been waiting for you. I've read about you. You're the leopard with wings." And he takes Alexander the Great and he shows him in the book of Daniel uh, what Jedua thought uh, was Alexander the Great, and I think he was correct. Uh, and so in one interesting turn of providence, Alexander the Great read about himself in the book of Daniel as he uh, occupied this area. And these empires, they all do certain things. Alexander brought with him the Greek language, which, of course, you know in your New Testament is written in Greek, because the Greeks had this area at some time. And so we can think that period of history, what God was accomplishing, was creating a uniform language for the whole empire to speak, which was Greek. After the Greeks are done, uh, the Romans take over. And the Romans embarked on a number of pretty aggressive building programs, um... First there's Julius Caesar and then there's Augustus Caesar and he says that he, he found Israel as a rock pile and he, or he, he found the empire as a rock pile and he left it as gold. He was a developer. He built things. You've heard about Roman roads. Um, and, and these roads ended up being the vessel by which the gospel could go out, by which the books of the Bible could be distributed and uh, missionary journeys could go out. So all these empires, as they're occupying this land, little do they know how they're serving the purposes of God. But they're all bringing their treasure into Jerusalem for God to repurpose according to his goodwill. And this is interesting for us because we uh, may be tempted sometimes to see church history and world history as two different things. But you start to see how these things weave into one another. Uh, When Julius Caesar dies, and you can read about these plays, right? You know the play about Julius Caesar. Uh, Maybe some of the older people have watched the movie Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor. This is all real history. And all of it is directly related, in one sense, to what's about to happen with the birth of Jesus. Putting all the characters in place, moving all the pieces into place just right for Jesus Christ to be born. After Julius Caesar dies childless, he has adopted his great nephew, Octavian, who later becomes known as uh, Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus has his sister married to a man named Mark Antony, and so there's kind of a, they, they hold this empire together, uh, and there's a, a sister and a wife that's kind of holding it in common. Unfortunately, Mark Antony falls in love with Cleopatra in Egypt, and there's a disruptive love triangle, and Mark Antony and Caesar Augustus are at war with one another. And if you've watched the movie, once they're about to get to, Cleopatra and Mark Antony, they commit suicide together, uh, and Caesar Augustus is now the sole crown of the Roman Empire. While all this infighting is happening and jockeying for position in the Roman Empire, there's a little skirmish that happens in Judea, in Jerusalem, uh, and that's who's going to take charge. So one man is appointed, uh, Herod's father, Antipater, who's an Idumean, is appointed governor of this region. He's in charge of this region, uh, and if you think of a, an Adumean, that might sound an awful lot like the Edomites that you read in the Bible, and that's because they are Edomites. It's the same people. Uh, and if you remember, the Edomites were those descendants of Esau. So these are distant cousins to the Jews, to the tribe of Jacob. Okay? Uh, and so Herod isn't a, too far a distant relative to the Jewish people. When his father Antipater dies, because the Roman Empire is in turmoil... Herod just says, well, it's pretty simple. My dad's dead. I'm just going to become the emperor of this area, or the king, not the emperor, but the king of this region. And so he just names himself king, and because the Romans are busy with other stuff, they just let him be. Eventually, he gets kicked out, uh, and he has to make a a plight to Rome to ask for uh, official control on behalf of the Romans for this area. And while he's there making his plea to the Senate... Keep in mind, none of these people know anything as far as we can tell about biblical prophecy, about what's to happen. They don't know the pieces that are moving in place and they don't even know how God is using them. One senator stands up in the back and he says, we should give him that region back and why don't we give him a title? Let's call him the king of the Jews. Interesting. Everyone finds that interesting. Yep, we've got a king of the Jews. Let's install him. He goes back. Uh, and this is where we move into the biblical narrative. This is who Herod the Great is. He's an Idumean, a descendant of Esau, uh, not too far removed in terms of relation from the Jewish people that he is in charge of ruling, and uh, he is interested in winning the favor of the Jewish people. So he uh, he marries uh, a Jewish princess by the name of Maryam, And then he takes her brother to gain even more favor and names him the high priest of Jerusalem. And this high priest of Jerusalem is very, very popular, so much so that Herod is getting less popular, so he calls together a party. Uh, And there's food and drink, and next thing you know, lo and behold, his brother-in-law has tragically died in the pool overnight. (laughs) And everyone thinks this looks like Herod did it. And he's not sure, but it looks suspicious enough that his wife starts to not trust him. So naturally, he kills her. And then there's another brother that comes up. And he's really suspicious. Now, it looks like you just killed my brother. You for sure killed my sister. So naturally, Herod has him put to death. Herod is losing his mind. This king of the Jews is losing his mind. He's getting paranoid. The Jews are against him, and these are the people he needs on his side because he's going to rule them. Uh, and so he's just done a bunch of things to make himself very unpopular. So he makes a concession, uh, and despite all his building projects for his own stuff, he decides that he's going to take the temple. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah a couple hundred years before? They go back to Jerusalem to rebuild it from the ruins, and uh, this is again by the permission of the king, Artaxerxes, Uh, but now Herod decides he's going to refurbish this temple. He's going to make it much bigger, much more glorious, much more grand. Uh, and so the second temple uh, from the Jews is refurbished and made very, very grand by Herod in an attempt to win back the favor of the Jews. This building project starts in 20 BC. So notice how close we are now to Christ being born. And think, just think of the environment. That's all I'm trying to do here is think of the context. Think of the environment into which Jesus is born. Herod's building project with the temple is dedicated in 10 B.C., and this is the temple that Jesus and the apostles would have been familiar with uh, that existed at his time. Herod's paranoia and his anger and his volatility gets worse and worse. He's going to kill anyone who's a threat to him, including three of his own sons. So by the year 7 B.C., which is about when Jesus gets on the scene, he's killed three of his own sons, and the word in Jerusalem is that you'd be better off being a pig than one of Herod's sons. (laughs) Right? Because Herod sees his sons as a threat. He's done all this. He, he installs himself as king. He goes back to Rome groveling to remain king. He gets named king of the Jews. He's done all this political maneuvering. Uh, he's not about to have it taken out of his hands. And so even his own sons are a threat to him. And he has them killed. In the year 6 BC, he attacks the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he finally dies in the year 4 BC. Leaving behind 10 wives who have given him quite a number Uh, of sons, some of whom we read about later in the Bible, like Agrippa, who's eaten by worms, uh, and the Herod before uh, whom Paul stands trial is one of this Herod's great-grandsons. So this is the volatile political climate into which Jesus Christ is born. Jesus is born in approximately 6 or 7 BC. Uh, The year zero was supposed to be the benchmark, but that happened in about the year 500, and it involves a miscalculation, so the people who dated our calendar meant for zero to be the year of Jesus' birth, but they did have it out by a few years. So Jesus was born several years uh, before that. And this God-man came into the world at the time of the Romans, just as Daniel had said hundreds of years earlier. Thanks to Alexander and the Greeks, there's a common language. Thanks to the Romans, there's a system of roads and synagogues, which was an arrangement which left the Jews subjects of the empire, but still with their own distinct society which is also important and locally we have a governor who has at the same time gone out of his way to make the Jewish people happy with him and angry with him he's a complicated character but it is safe to say that by the year 7 BC Herod has lost his mind to paranoia and he is clinging so desperately to his crown that he is left killing his own sons and wives and now After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, this is what's happening, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And so again, we have a time and a place reference for Jesus' birth, reminding us that we're not dealing with mythology, we're not dealing with a fairy tale, we're dealing with actual history in the real world. And despite the power of the images from our nativity scenes that we always see at Christmas, the magi did not come to the manger. They're showing up approximately two years after Jesus is born. Mary and Joseph are back at their home with this young boy. And what's remarkable to me about this is how unremarkable it all is. Many of the prophets, including Daniel... See the small beginning during the time of the Romans. And we see that the, the, the coming of Jesus isn't like the 82nd Airborne just parachuting in and all the world changes at once. It's quiet. Think of how unremarkable his birth is. It's noticed by shepherds at first when he is born. And then Simeon and Anna. And then there's nothing for two years. It's just silent. It's like he's being ignored for two years. Think of that. Just feel the weight of that. The God-man comes to earth, and it's just put aside. One would expect that given the significance of God taking on human form, taking on a human nature and a human body, you'd think there should be a buzz of activity, and official visits and religious visits and royal visits, especially from the Jewish leaders who would have been familiar with the prophecies about their Messiah. But instead, there's just a mundane silence followed by a visit from foreigners from the east. The wise men who came are called magi, from which if you use the word magic, you are using a word that is related to who these guys are. They're kind of interesting characters. Uh, Some see them as kings, but they're probably more like court advisors of some sort. Uh, And they were scholars of a sort, dealing with uh, the realm of mysteries and astrology and that kind of thing. And so they get to Jerusalem from the east. They've traveled a very long distance, probably from Persia, uh, in what today would be Iraq or Iran, uh, so that it's a long journey, especially by those uh, standards of that day. And in verse two, it's interesting to note their question. So keep in mind, these are foreigners who don't have a direct interest in what's happening in Jerusalem, uh, or with the Jews or with Herod. Uh, they came out of their way because they were interested, they were intrigued, they were curious. And it'd be interesting to think about the the, the level or the type of interest that they had. So they're interested in astrology, but were they just here because, you know, like a storm chaser starts in Texas and he follows the storm all the way to Nebraska? Is it just that, that they were just enamored by the star and that's why they go? It seems to be more than that, because they come with gifts ready. They come acknowledging that Jesus is a king. And they're interested enough in keeping him safe that after they have their dream or their vision, they go a different way home. And so even though these men are not Jewish, there is good reason to believe that they possibly had some familiarity with the scriptures. And we know, again, from the book of Daniel, in chapter 5, there does seem to be some Persians who have a working knowledge of scripture. So it's possible that they knew something uh, significant about Jesus. But whatever the motives or the heart of these men, it seems like they are genuinely intrigued by what's happening. And there is an authentic desire to know more. Some have noted that the Jewish shepherds were notified by an angel and these Eastern astrologers by a star. And so in one sense, uh, God is speaking in the language that either group understands. The Jews would have understood the angelic host uh, and these Eastern mystics would have understood astrology. And so God is using different means to get them to his son. But whatever they do or don't know, Despite their foreign background and them being themselves outside of the Jewish faith, the Magi seem to be operating with a kind of genuine faith. And note their question when they show up. They don't ask if the king of the Jews has been born. They're not asking, did this actually happen? They're acknowledging it did happen. Where is he? See, there's a certain amount of faith and there's a certain amount of belief even in their question. Where is he? The sincerity of their question is a rebuke to those to whom they'm speaking. The religious leaders have spent two years being entirely uninterested by the most pivotal event in all of human history. They just couldn't be bothered. And here come these Eastern mystics who shouldn't even care about this stuff. And there's poking and asking questions. And so you have, in one very real sense, the ignorant, humiliating, and humbling the educated. And I think there's a level of application here for us as Christians... <clears throat> Are we so familiar, or do we think we're so familiar with Christianity that we quit being curious? Right? We've been in the church our whole life. I've, I know the stories. There's nothing more for me to learn. Right? I, I just, I, well, I know it, and I'm, I'm bored with it. Uh, and yet it's uh, the church that God has entrusted his word with. How could we ever be bored? There is such a depth and such a richness in the scriptures that we should never ever be bored by it, or uninterested, or, or quit asking questions, or quit being curious. That's the mistake that many of these leaders had made. Sometimes, for those of us who are Christians, we need to zeal in the curiosity of a new believer who's willing to just rapid fire you with questions. Has anyone been in that situation, where they just rapid fire you with questions that you think are mundane and boring and yet you almost need that sense of curiosity to re-examine it yourself and yeah no i i need to get reacquainted with these stories and it's it's exciting and sometimes we need that we need to be provoked with that kind of curiosity or that zeal little children are often that way too i mean how many how many times when you tell kids a story is there a, a round of why questions well why 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 and it can be tiring but we need that sometimes to think about our assumptions to get curious once again <clears throat> but then, as now, we see that sometimes those who should be leading others to Christ show that they may, in fact, be strangers to him. The lazy pride of religious leaders would have prompted them to push back, possibly against the wise men. And again, in our own time, we may do that and say, well, why would you be interested? It doesn't really concern you. Why would you, as an outsider, be interested? But in this case, the wise men have already uh, examined this And their faithful curiosity has provided everyone around with the answer. They say, we have come to worship him. There's a genuine faith in what they're doing, despite whatever their misunderstandings may or may not be. In verse 3, it carries on. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We've already seen how Herod's paranoia is intensifying in the time leading up to Christ's birth. So keep in mind, he's murdered a wife, two brothers-in-law, and three of his own sons, all for the sake of keeping a crown on his head. He was given the title king of the Jews, and he is not about to give it up. And the wise men questioning, asking where this king of the Jews is, is already an insult to him. It's already a confrontation, and he's troubled by it. He had to grovel to Caesar, maneuver himself politically to get his job, and then to get it back, and now someone is just born into this title, king of the Jews? Think of what he all had to do to get it. And now a baby shows up with this title. He's threatened. Herod has every reason to be disturbed because if he's going to play this game to the end, he will have to realize there cannot be two ultimate kings of the Jews. He sees Christ, he sees the Messiah as a threat and an enemy rather than as a help. And how different that is. One account I read about now recently in the Queen's passing was her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, uh, when talking to a chaplain was talking about the prospect of her dying and meeting Jesus. And the report is that through tears, she longed for that day. So this is the queen of the British Empire when it's at its greatest height. And she says, I should so love to lay my crown down at his feet. How different is that than Herod, who will not lay down his crown, but wants to play out a war. So we can understand why Herod is troubled, but why does it say Jerusalem is troubled alongside him? If this is the Messiah, then this boy poses no threat to the Jewish people. The Messiah is coming to save them, not to hurt them. And yet this too can show the foolishness that is in the human heart. We often prefer the slavery we know to the freedom that we don't know. I've mentioned a few times how closely Christ is going to faithfully follow the footsteps of Israel on his way to his glorification. There is a faithful reenactment of the life of Israel in Christ. And Moses in the Exodus very clearly foreshadows Jesus. But what do the people in Moses' time do as they're being freed? They suddenly realize freedom is dangerous. Freedom is risky. You can hurt yourself in freedom. Bad things happen when you're free. And so what do they want? Well, bring us back. We had fish. We had leeks. We had cucumbers back in Egypt. Put us back in our chains. Please, that was so much better. It was safer There, when we were in our chains. They don't want the jagged edges. And so they become nostalgic and unrealistic about how good they had it back in Egypt. And how often do we do the same thing? We reject the freedom that's offered in the gospel because our idols are so familiar to us. Our way of living is so familiar. We prefer that to the danger and to the risk and to the promise of freedom that Christ has set us free. Sin bribes. But it never satisfies. It always promises, but it hides the true cost. The Anglican Puritan Richard Sibbs points this out very well, I think. When he points out, Satan gives Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. Think of what we lose when we reject the freedom offered through the gospel. In the Exodus, Israel seemed willing to give up the promised land in exchange for vegetables and fish. And now, these people seem happy to give up true freedom in exchange for political stability. They don't want their lives to be upset. And they don't know that this gamble ultimately will cost everything. I think there's a good principle that's established uh, that when we make secondary things primary, which is what idolatry is. Idolatry is often taking something that in itself is good and fine but elevating it to a place that it doesn't belong. And so when we take those secondary things like safety or familiarity and we elevate that to the highest place, not only do we lose the big things, but we also tend to lose what we're shooting for. Okay? And when we, when we aim for the big things, when we aim for the glory of God, not only do we get that, but we get the world thrown in. I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says that we should seek first his kingdom. And all these things will be added on to you. It's not that these things are bad. It's just that they need to be put in their proper place. And these people are not elevating things to their proper place. They've got it disordered. They want their freedom. They want life to carry on as it always was, no matter that something better was on offer. It seems unlikely that Herod would have been ignorant of the prophecies about Jesus, since he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, he was a distant relative to the Jewish people. He's ruling in Jerusalem, and he's taken a Jewish wife. But having been shamed by the wise men, now the chief priests and the scribes get to work answering Herod's question of where the Christ was to have been born. And this wasn't a trick question. Most people would have known that the correct answer was Bethlehem, but now because there's a certain urgency to the question, they get to work on it. And their answer is correct. They're referring here mostly to Micah chapter 5, verse 2 which speaks of a ruler coming from Judah and which also uses Daniel's ancient of days language. But there's also references in there to Ezekiel 34 and 2 Samuel 5, which speak of this ruler being a shepherd. So they do get the answer correct, but this actually highlights even further the absurdity of their indifference. They get the answer right. They know this and they're indifferent. They don't care. They've left him alone for two years. These are the men who have been entrusted with the scriptures. And even though they're familiar with the contents, they seemingly can't be bothered. This is their Messiah, the Jewish Savior, and he is born six miles south of them. Think of that. We we might think this is a big, long journey. It's six miles. Think if Jesus Christ set up an office in Niverville, from here. That's six miles. And for two years, nobody in this church could even be bothered. Think of that. Six miles is not an arduous journey. If they had been curious, if they had been interested, they could have made it, even on foot. It's not that big a deal. But nobody bothers to pay him a visit, to check things out, or to prepare the heart of the people. And then think, how ashamed would we be if nobody from this church was willing to get to Niverville to see Christ in his office there? And for two years, no one had checked it out. And then a busload of Muslims shows up from Toronto. And they step in here. And they ask the elders at Trinity Fellowship, where's Jesus? Oh, he's over in Neverville. What's wrong with that picture? Who's who's exercising the softness of heart? Who's exercising genuine curiosity, saving faith? The fact that it's these magi from the east, these eastern mystics that come and show up is a rebuke. It's embarrassing. They're the ones demonstrating a softness of heart. Verses 7 through 10. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king... They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so now Herod, while still paranoid, is covering this with a veneer of piety and self-righteousness, right? Well, tell me where he is. I'd, I'd be quite curious to worship him myself, right? There's a, we know there's an insincerity there. He's covering up. He's a traitor in his heart. But it's difficult to know in the, in the narrative what's going through everyone's head. It's only a few miles from Herod to Bethlehem. Why did Herod trust these guys? Why not send spies along with them so that he for sure had people who knew where Jesus was? We don't know. It's something I thought about after. Why wouldn't you send spies along? Clearly, he thinks he trusts them. Were the Magi getting red flags from Herod in the moment? Later on, they're going to be warned in a dream to go back a different way. But were there warning signs in their meeting with him right then? The text doesn't say. We don't know. But it could be that Herod had an overestimated sense of himself in his own sense of cunning, in his own sense of political maneuverability, that he just thought that these guys were pawns in his hands and that he had nothing to fear. That may be. As the Magi leave... The star continues to lead them as it had initially. And some people have suggested, and you've probably heard this, that this would have been like a natural constellation or a natural planetary movement uh, that they were following. Uh, and there's nothing inherently that would make that automatically wrong because God frequently uses means to accomplish supernatural things, right? How did he part the Red Sea? With an east wind, okay? So there'd be nothing inherently wrong if he did use a normal constellation to bring them there, but it seems unlikely. This does seem like it is a a supernatural special creation designed for this job uh, and this job alone, because it seems like it changes directions here as they leave Jerusalem and go south to Bethlehem. Whether ordinary or, in this case, extraordinary, one thing we can see is the faithfulness of God to provide He's given these men what they need to find Jesus. They may have been tempted to think that God would lead them all the way from Persia till Jerusalem, only to leave them get lost uh, in this distance. And the Israelites in the Exodus also had a series of catastrophic miracles, bringing down the mightiest nation on earth, allowing to walk out with all the treasure. And within weeks, they're complaining and looking back. They seem to think that God has brought them this far just to abandon them. And us as Christians may likewise be tempted to think that way about God's providence. We can look back, and looking backwards, we always see how God has been faithful. He's brought me this far. He's done so much for me. All my life, he's taken care of me. And there's been a hundred times when I just didn't see a way forward, and you can too in your own life. How many times is there no way forward, and then suddenly there is? God has taken care of you. He's brought you this far. He's not the kind of person to abandon you in the wilderness once he's taken you so far. He leads his children all the way home. And in this case, the star leads the shepherds or leads the the magi all the way home. His providence is perfect. Whether, Whether his providence is supernatural and it just really shines out in your life, or whether his providence is ordinary, okay? A conversation with a friend, some ordinary job opening, just ordinary providence. In either case, God does not abandon his children. His providence is perfect. We need eyes to see it. So the star has led them not just to the general district of Jerusalem, but from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and even to the correct door, to the correct house of Mary and Joseph. It says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so verse 11 reminds us again that we're not at the nativity any longer, but we're rather at the home of a mother and her young toddler who have settled into what seemingly is an ordinary life. And despite how mundane it all looks, the finger of God is clearly on, this, on these men. And they recognize Christ for who he is. And they act appropriately. They bow down and worship a little guy. We talked about the incarnation last week. And I want you to think about how remarkable this is. These guys show up at the door. And here's this little boy who is just learning how to bend his knees up, straighten his knees so he can walk. And he's just learning how to complete full sentences. And in that little boy, God the Son, the Ancient of Days, is so powerful that he gets these powerful men to bend their knees down and come out with complete sentences of praise from their mouths. It's remarkable. This is the same little boy. That is the mystery of the incarnation. The gifts that these men bring also is fitting, and it's evident that only God could write a story like this. Christ, in his ministry, is going to take on, to perfect, and to fulfill once and for all the significant Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king as he goes through his ministry. And the gold that they bring him is a treasure that is fitting for a king. The incense is what the priests burned to symbolize the prayers of God's people. And the incense is interesting. In the temple, there was a curtain separating the holy from the holy of holies. And this curtain signifies this chasm uh, or this firmament between God and man. And yet the, the smoke and the, the, the smell of incense can penetrate through that curtain and get into another dimension. Incense is a very fitting picture of our prayers that get through the chasm between us and God, and Jesus is receiving incense, and myrrh was frequently used for embalming dead bodies, something that would also be in Christ's future. So while these gifts all have an immediate function and usefulness, they also all signify important elements of Christ's person, his ministry, and the offices that he is going to hold as prophet, priest, and king. Where does this leave us? The account of Herod and the wise men instruct us both positively and negatively. Herod has every reason that he could be happy about the arrival of the Messiah. He could increase his popularity and his place in history by bending the knee to the ultimate king of the Jews and to rejoice at the coming of the Messiah for the good of the people in his region. And a good king would have done this. They would have led their people towards God. Instead he leads his people deeper back into the despair of slavery and back to the comfort of their chains. The wise men start as strangers and foreigners but in their curiosity in the Christ turns seemingly into genuine faith and a willingness to invest in Christ's kingdom with their gifts. And we are all confronted with the same basic options. Are we going to remain slaves to the chains and to the idols that we're used to? Okay? I've lived my life a certain way for, well, today, 43 years. Some of it good, some of it bad. Am I just going to say that whatever I'm used to is right? Are we going to say that? Right? And how often do we, are we tempted by that? Well, I know the right way because that's literally the way I grew up. Okay? I've done it that way for the last 12 years. Obviously, that's the right way to do it. We need to challenge our assumptions. Just because something is familiar, just because we grew up a certain way, just because it feels safe, doesn't mean it's right. We should not remain slaves to our idols or what we're used to. We need to take the risk of being free subjects in a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And so whether it's going to be with our time or our talents or our finances, we need to be intentional about investing in Christ and in his kingdom. And our investment needn't be limited to one place. But I do want to make an application, especially as we move into winter and have a few things going here as a new church i want to make application also to this but it's not certainly limited to it trinity is new we've enjoyed lots of growth we're stretching ourselves into new ministries many of which rely heavily on volunteers and there has been a tremendous amount of willingness and cheerfulness to pitch in and help which is wonderful And so I want to say a very sincere thank you to everyone who is willing to make all these ministries and all these things possible. Thank you. And our financial needs aren't especially high right now, but should the Lord answer our prayer and provide us with a building, that will change quite drastically. Are we ready for that? Are we willing to invest in Christ's kingdom that way? Even apart from the need, even if there's no seeming need, Learning how to invest in God's kingdom with our time and our talents and our finances, our disciplines, which we are told will yield 30, 60, or 100 times. It's never wasted if we're investing in Christ and in his kingdom. And so I want to challenge all of us this morning to examine the disposition of our hearts. Are we okay feeling safe with the comfort, with what we're used to, like Herod, like the Jewish religious leaders? Are we going to play it safe? Or are we going to invest ourselves through great difficulty like the Magi did? And I want to leave that with myself and with all of you as we consider our investment in the kingdom of Christ, both in this church and then also more broadly. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you That you do so many unlikely things and you show us your goodness and your kindness and your patience with us. Lord, you use unexpected, mysterious guys from the East uh, to show us that we need to be curious. We need to be uh, invested in who you are. Lord, and for those of us who have grown up as Christians, I want to thank you so much for the tremendous blessing and the opportunity that that has provided us. And yet, Lord, at the same time, I pray that none of us would be so familiar with your word and so familiar with, uh, with you that we think there is nothing more to learn and there is nothing more to do or to pursue. Lord, I pray that you would give us a humble, faithful curiosity, a desire to stretch ourselves, to invest in your kingdom. Lord, and I pray that as we do that here as a church and more broadly and in, uh, in other areas of life where we're involved, I pray that you would minister to others through us. Lord, that we would see that the effort is worth it. You promised to bless it Lord, and I pray that we would operate and invest ourselves in light of that promise. Lord, we ask for your blessing on each one uh, as we examine how to use our finances, how to use our time, how to use the gifts that you have given us. Lord, I pray that you would use each one here to the furtherance and to the building of your kingdom. Lord, and we ask the same as a church, that we would reach our community effectively, uh, that you would use this to build your kingdom. We thank you for your kindness to us, and we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So the charge is this. The visit of the wise men is a study in contrasts that is going to keep appearing in the Gospel of Matthew. We've already seen in Jesus' genealogy that God is pleased to graft unlikely people into the story, and he does so now again. Herod and the religious leaders had the inside track to recognizing and welcoming the Messiah. Yet their indifference, hostility, and unbelief stands in stark relief to the humility, curiosity, and faith of the outsiders who have come to Christ through great inconvenience. We know that we are to see Christ's kingdom as a matter of first importance. And as we consider the way we allocate our time, our talents, and our money, let's consider what our calendar our events and our bank statements teach us about our own priorities. Are we strangers to the kingdom even while standing right next to it? Or are we citizens willing to come in through many dangers, toils, and snares? And I'll leave you with the benediction from Ephesians three twenty to 21 Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh within us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And amen. And go in peace. Don't forget about the birthday cake being served. Should we just all sing happy birthday right now? Yeah, happy birthday.